he took things that were being disparaged in the 1950s and 60s about our society, and he made them have a history. He tied them to our culture. Hello, my name is Suzanne Mumaw, and I am the director of the University of Virginia Press. Welcome to our podcast, featuring authors, ideas, and perspectives by some of the world's most interesting people. Today, Helen Horowitz takes us on a new journey of America through the eyes of J.P. Jackson, a pioneer in landscape studies, who gave us all new perspectives on where we live and what we see. Horowitz and her husband, Dan, were friends with J.P. Jackson, which gives this biography the illumination of the personal alongside the objectivity of a cultural historian. Prowse said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. This powerful book helps us know Jackson, but also discover the places and spaces of everyday America. I'm Helen Horowitz, and I'm here to talk about this book, Traces of J.B. Jackson. Dan Horowitz, who is sitting patiently here, he's my husband. He was a friend of J.B. Jackson's as much as I was, and he is going to act as my interlocutor. Well, maybe we should begin at the beginning, not of Jackson's life, but of our, and especially your relationship to Jackson. So why don't you talk about that moment around 1972 when we read Jackson's book, American Space. We read this book and decided that this was a terrific time for us to do a joint review because the book talked about so many things that we had cared about for such a long time. By then, we'd been married for nine years, and much of our relationship was spent looking at buildings and looking at weirdities across the United States. So there we were in Washington. We both uh, were living near the Library of Congress and had access to their wonderful holdings. And so I looked in the catalog just to see maybe he'd published something before. Well, it turns out that in 1951, he started publishing a magazine called Landscape Magazine. So I went to the open stacks then uh, at the Library of Congress, sat on the floor and pulled down the first volume and was absolutely transfixed. It just was an experience that I get chills about today, thinking about how it changed the way I saw the world. After that, we learned we were going to be going to teach at Scripps College in California, and we thought it might be a good idea to go from Washington back to Cambridge to see our world of friends and say goodbye to them. And then at a certain point, we said, well, why don't we take some time and just walk through the Harvard campus, because we had known it pretty well, hadn't we? Yes, indeed. And then we knocked on his door. There was this voice that said, come in. (laughs) And then we opened the door, and there was this man sitting at a a long seminar table. And he got up and shook our hands, and he immediately engaged us in conversation. And he said to the two of us, why don't we go and have a cup of coffee together? And we sat then for the next four hours and talked. And at the end of that, we were 
really transfixed, what can I say? And he announced to me I would carry his message to the West. He sort of thought he was, I guess, anointing me in some kind of way. Well, I took that responsibility pretty seriously. So let's return later to how that relationship develops. But now we ought to talk about what was distinctive about the way he helped us understand uh, the world we saw. I think the important part of it is that he took things that were being disparaged in the 1950s and 60s about our society, suburban houses, uh, back lots, roads, signage, Trailer uh, trailer parks. He took the everyday things we see around us in what was then a burgeoning economy, and he made them have a history. He tied them to our culture. He didn't denigrate them. He never praised them. He just presented them as something real and important that he could describe and give some meaning to. So what he meant by landscape was not fancy gardens that were designed by landscape architects. Rather, what he did was helped us to see, often in historical terms, the everyday vernacular things we see around us. Right, right. And he was often criticized later on for not being negative about them. He was neither negative nor positive. He was simply trying to get us to see what they were and at a certain level, I think, then accept them. Yeah, there was a wonderful moment when you gave a talk when we were still in California, and there were two people there who had taken his class at at Berkeley. And one of them said, I walked out of the uh, lecture room and I never saw the world the same again. What did that mean? Well, it was what happened to me. So, uh, I mean, because of what we had done in our own leisure time, I had actually started to be very interested in curiosities of architecture, but I was mainly interested in architect design things. And what he made me see was what was all around me that had never been designed by an architect and made me also see it in historical perspective. He gave the history of the landscape and in doing so, he gave a kind of history of the visual world that was before our eyes. And he made it vivid, alive, something, if not to admire, at least to understand. He had a wonderful expression. He said, landscape is history made visible. For example, in the first issue, or one of the first issues, he took a house from Massachusetts from the late 17th century, and then he took a house in the Midwest in the mid-19th century, and then one in Texas in the mid-20th century. And He compared them, and in doing that, he talked about the culture that had shaped them. And that culture was one of, first of religion, and then of nature and the out-of-doors, and finally of industrial farming. And to me, it was just so exciting to read this. He also, in the very first issue, talked about the differences between a place, Chihuahua, in Mexico, and a border town in Texas, and what that meant, and what a national political border meant to the reshaping of space, and that was really interesting as well. 
So although you and I uh, first engaged his work by reading a book of his, he really was an essayist. It's really the essay form that he used to write his most compelling pieces. I never counted the words, but they typically ran about three pages in his landscape magazine. And he was also a sketcher. He had done a lot of sketching from really a very young age, as well as he'd done a lot of writing. And so he illustrated his magazine with his own sketches, just in black and white. And the essay form allowed a much more personal voice, I think, for him to use. And it was a always an interesting voice. Uh, it varied from essay to essay. He had other parts of the magazine, notes and comments, which he used as a kind of editorial to speak his mind or to tell jokes. He had very funny elements in his magazine. And uh, then he had a reviewing section. And he was a very intelligent, scholarly reviewer. He then took on some of the major figures in his day, such as Christopher Tenard, and those people got those reviews and they began to write for his magazine. So his influence really starts with Landscape Magazine, founded in 1951. It's a small magazine, a very limited circulation, but over time his reputation, uh, his vision uh, reverberated more widely. Uh, can you talk about how that happened? Well, it happened in a number of ways. He started at a local level being a representative for conferences that talked about development, landscape development or environmental development. And then he was a very good speaker and he then got invited to conferences first in a regional level and then nationally. And he took himself uh, to Berkeley to kind of learn what was being done in cultural geography and he sat in on courses and then they asked him to give some lecture series just among the faculty and then he was invited to teach. So and this is in the what the late 60s? 60s, yeah. In the late 60s he began to teach at Berkeley and then Harvard got the word and he began to teach at Harvard. So in the fall he went to Cambridge to teach at Harvard, lived in his old house which was Adam's house gave a very popular course for undergraduates to which some of the design school people began to attend and then went home to La Cienica for the Christmas holidays and then off to Berkeley for the winter, I think it's called a quarter there. There he taught in the geography department, perhaps other departments as well, and uh, became a, a very popular lecturer. And he was also lecturing when he wasn't at Berkeley or Harvard, he was also lecturing nationally. So in going to Harvard, in some ways, he's returning not exactly to where he began, because his origins are even before that, but could you tell about what leads up to his first arrival at Harvard and then uh, how that okay. reverberates? Well, he grew up primarily in New York City. His father deserted the family when he was four years old and he never saw him again. He lived with his mother and his two half-siblings, a brother and a sister, in a range of New York apartments. And his mother went to work. She was not wealthy uh, in her own name, but she also had a kind of prestigious position in many ways in the context that she had. So through that, 
She got her son to Choate, then a year in France in private school, and then he went to Deerfield for his final two years. And then Deerfield was a very important place for him. He got really quite centered there. Like all the sons of Deerfield, felt he was close to the master or the head of the school named Boyden. And he corresponded with Deerfield in some ways almost for the rest of his life. Uh, some of his most important letters were to Boyden himself. This is a, an origin uh, story of three really prestigious private schools, La Rose in Switzerland, Choate in Connecticut, and then Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts. So his origins are in a very elite world. Uh, and the trajectory of his life is so fascinating to us and to readers of your book, because eventually, when we came to know him, he straddled multiple worlds, an African-American one, elite one in Santa Fe, uh, and a Latino one, a Spanish-speaking one in La Cienica. In addition, a kind of evangelical community that he joined in La Cienica, which I think was primarily white and, quote, Yankee or whatever. One of the elements of the East Coast world that he was raised in, the schools that he went to, even Harvard College, was that it was filled with racism and anti-Semitism. That is where he began, and it was fully accepted by the world that he knew, and it is visible in his writing. Especially uh, in the 30s. Right. In the earlier period, before Landscape magazine, it is quite visible in his writings in the 1930s and in his personal world of the 1940s. What he came to was a very different sense of himself. He came to a point in which he certainly was accepting of those people who were of Jewish origin or Jewish practice. He became very interested in all of that. Uh, he came to accept us and our world uh, very fully. And there was one point in which he dragged us all to a cocktail party in a very beautiful house of a very elite family from the East Coast and introduced us to him as Helen Lefkowitz Horowitz and Daniel Horowitz. Our names give our, our ethnic identity. And then he turned to our host and he said, you have on the most beautiful red tie. You know, red is not always a good color, but that is a magnificent red. In this, this tone of voice we'd never heard before. And the next day he would tell us about uh, his success in cleaning trash from trailer courts, which was one of the jobs he did for pay. So I think that that's part of the migration that he took over his lifetime. And I think what really changed him was World War II. He was in intelligence, but he was with a division. And I think living with other soldiers and that experience, he came out of the war a very different person. But the straddling uh, also reverberates in his writing, right? Because after all, he's, uh, he's grounded in many ways in literary history, in French theories about landscape, and yet he's using that deep, deep pervasive knowledge to, to explain to broad audiences the ordinary, everyday vernacular landscape. And he uses ordinary, everyday words to do that. 
And uh, that was part of his gift. And he also had an, an ability to mentor. I felt I was mentored by him. I think he was the only adult who mentored me. I never took a formal course from him. And he also accepted from his students their advice, and he accepted my advice and often my help. And ultimately, I was able to put together a volume of his most revered essays and uh, write an introduction to it. Unfortunately, it was meant to cheer him up, but he died, sadly, the, the year before it was published. But it exists as landscape inside, and I think it's a wonderful uh, collection of his work that I and 35 other people that I canvassed chose. And I must say, to return to the book itself, what you do in the book so wonderfully is capture not only his evocation of the vernacular, but the complex relationship you uh, and he had together. And that's yeah. one, both of those things drive the book. Uh, his vision of what the vernacular meant and uh, your relationship, your engagement with him uh, over a period of decades. You can find Helen Horowitz's book, Traces of J.B. Jackson, at upress.virginia.edu and other online booksellers. UVA Press Presents is a podcast by the University of Virginia Press and a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Many thanks to Helen and Dan Horowitz. UVA Press Presents is produced by Mary Garner McGee. Our theme music is Greylock from Blue Dot Sessions.